themselves in a letter that is all about time. It's a letter about time, where Paul is going to reveal to us a mystery that was revealed to him as a plan for the fullness of time. You know, as we, uh, we think about the Old Testament, we've walked through the whole Old Testament as a church family over the last year and a half or so. There's so many mysteries in the Old Testament. So, for example, Gideon read to us from Isaiah 66, when is, when is this sign going to be put in the midst of the people? When... When are they going to go to the nations and gather survivors? When are even some of these survivors going to be Levites and priests? What's this going to look like? Or I think of Ezekiel. When, when's this temple going to be rebuilt? When will the land be divided like a stepladder? When are all these things going to happen? There's a mystery to it. There's a mystery. And what Paul is going to show us this morning in his letter to the Ephesians is that the coming of Christ, that the coming of Jesus Christ is the revealing of the mystery. That what Jesus came to do was according to God's plan for the fullness of time. In such a way that it even resets our whole concept of time. What time is it? What time is it? What time do we find ourselves in? And we see... Three things in this letter related to time. And that's what we will look at this morning. First, Paul tells us in Ephesians that we live in a time to worship. A time to worship. Paul introduces his letter in typical fashion, writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. Not all of the early manuscripts of Ephesians have Ephesus in the introduction, which leads many scholars to view Ephesians actually as a circular letter, a letter that was meant to be passed around to the other churches in Asia Minor and beyond. And so Paul gives us maybe a more of a, I don't want to say generic letter, but a letter not written for specific issues in a specific church, but he's writing for issues affecting all the churches that are being planted by the apostles and wants to give every church, including by the grace of the Spirit, ours today as well, an understanding of the time that we live in. And he begins by telling us that it's a time for worship. Normally, right after Paul's greeting, as we see in verses 1 and 2, he will move immediately into thanksgiving. 
and into prayer. That is his typical fashion. But in this letter, Paul can't contain himself. He begins with worship. Look at verse 3 and following with me of chapter 1. Paul shows us that we live in a time for worship. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So now we find in the fullness of time, God has done something for his church in Christ that has unleashed to the likes of you and me, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Indeed, every promise we will see in the Old Testament is given to us in its spiritual substance in Jesus Christ. These opening verses, verses 3 to 14, are one gloriously eloquent run-on sentence. It's one beautiful run-on sentence. And it's divided into four parts. And we're looking at the whole book today, so I'm, we, we're not going to dive very deep. But if you just take note of verse 4, verse 7, verse 11... In verse 13, 4, 7, 11, and 13, Paul divides this beautiful run-on sentence into four things that have been given to us that summarize every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I'll just give them to you here in brief. And he gives this as an act of worship, blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 that God chose us in him. The first spiritual blessing is that we were chosen in him. And when? Another note to time. Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, Paul says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The second reason Paul worships him in this glorious, eloquent, run-on sentence is that in Christ we have redemption. The way in which we are made holy and blameless is by the redemption, verse 7, that we have through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, Verse 9, this is key, verse 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Paul uses the word in verse 10 of economy, oikonomia. Normally when we think about economy, we think about finances. But Paul is referring to economy here in the sense of time. How has God partitioned out time? And here we see that Jesus' coming is the pinnacle of time. God set forth, when he sent his son to earth, 
to take on flesh and dwell among us, he set forth in Christ a plan, as we see in verse 10, for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and in earth. And what Paul means here is that by this work of redemption, Jesus has established his supremacy over all things as Lord of all things in heaven and on earth. And this economy, this plan, is the mystery of his will. And this is going to be a mystery that Paul unpacks in this letter. So Paul worships God because he chose us in him. And because through Jesus we have redemption. Thirdly, he also worships God because in him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Paul says we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Again, this inheritance we will see is the reception of all of the promises of God that we find in the Old and the New Testament. All the things promised are given to us as his people. It makes me think of what Paul wrote in, uh, in Romans 8. How will not he give us all things? Remember, he who graciously gave us his own son, how will he not also with him give us all things? All things. That's inheriting all things with Christ. And then the third or the fourth thing that Paul praises God for in respect to the spiritual blessings that have been given to us, verse 13, is that we've been given a down payment, a guarantee of our inheritance, which is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Look at verse 13. In him, you also, when you, were, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul tells us, shows us, because of what Jesus has done, we live in a time for worship. Because we have been given in Jesus every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us before the foundation of the world. We have redemption through his blood. We have obtained an inheritance, indeed all things, in him. And we have been given the guarantee of that inheritance by the Spirit who dwells within us. In light of this worship, it leads Paul to prayer. In verses 15 and following, and his prayer in sum is this. Look at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his Glorious inheritance in the saints, and so on. 
But what I want to look at this morning, because this is what Paul fixates on, is the hope to which he has called you. And that leads us to our second point. We live in a time to understand the mystery of the gospel, which is hope for Gentiles like you and me. So we've seen it's a time for worship, and now secondly, it's a time to understand the mystery of the gospel, which is hope for Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ. The main theological treatise, then, of this letter comes in chapters 2 and 3. This is the heart of Ephesians and the heart of the economy. Paul is now going to explain the economy of God, the mystery that is now revealed. The mystery of the gospel that becomes hope for Gentiles like you and me. So if you want to understand the core of the Old Testament as Christ is concealed in the Old Testament, it is now revealed in the New and specifically in books like Ephesians where Paul ties in all of the promises of God, all the plans that God has for his people, that Jesus is the key that unlocks our understanding of God's mystery that was hidden in ages past but is now revealed in Jesus. So let's look at this mystery. Let's unpack this mystery of the gospel. I want you to quickly look at your worship folder on page four. And I've given there an outline for you of the book of Ephesians. And this second part, the second point, the mystery of the gospels, hope for Gentiles in the church. This is what we're going to look at. This is, as Paul tells us, the mystery revealed. So as he prays that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and understanding to open the eyes of your heart, he has given you the ability now to read the Old Testament in, with clarity, to understand what it's all about. And it's the hope of the gospel that is hope for Gentiles like you and me. And you'll see there that there are five things, and we're going to look at these five things this morning, which is the revelation of the gospel. So then let's look then at starting in chapter 2, verse 1 and following, verses uh, 1 to 10. Here we see our hope begins with the fact that while we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, Verse 5, that God made us alive together with Christ. That you were dead in your sin. And I was dead in my sin. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
And how do we receive this grace, brothers and sisters? Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The revealing of the gospel begins with the fact that indeed there was no hope of salvation through the old covenant with Moses. That indeed, as we learn in Romans, that God in his forbearance overlooked former sins and then dealt with them in Jesus that indeed, the ages were waiting to know how was this going to work out. Why? So think about yourself. If you're, if you're a pious Israelite, why are things not getting better for Israel? We have the law. We have the sacrifices. Why are the promises not coming to us? Why are we as a people not becoming more sanctified? As we saw in the Old Testament, indeed the the whole message of the Old Testament is that we are totally depraved. Every opportunity Israel had to save themselves, they failed. Every time God sent a prophet, they failed to listen. The whole thing is a downward spiral. How on earth, then, is God going to save us? And we saw last week in Galatians how the law, the Mosaic Code, was a temporary guardian until the heir came, Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham. And the way that we would be made alive is with Jesus Christ. And we saw last week in Galatians that we become sons and daughters of Abraham through faith in Christ because Abraham was the man of faith. But Jesus is the key that unlocks all the blessings. This mystery is also revealed in the fact, looking at verse 11, a second way the mystery is revealed is that Jesus creates the church. Jesus creates the church. That is, he creates one new man in the place of two. Paul is speaking directly to Gentiles here. Look at verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul is reminding them of what it means to be dead, you Gentiles. You were separated from Christ, from the Messiah. You have no natural right to the Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth, from the nation of Israel. You are not citizens of Israel. All the more, 
You were strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants were not given for you by nature, naturally. The promises are not for you naturally. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Paul tells the Gentiles in the church, you by nature had no hope and were without God in the world. So by nature, I don't know if there's anyone who is Jewish here, but by nature, everyone here, we were without God, we were without hope. We have no natural right to citizenship in Israel and no natural right to receive the covenants of promise. How on earth then could God talk about Gentiles coming in in the Old Testament? That's a mystery. And now Paul reveals the mystery of the gospel, and that is this, that Jesus, through his blood, created one new man in the place of the two. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. We saw that last week as Jesus abolishes the Mosaic code over the people of God. Okay? So verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And now what is the result of this for all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, but particularly for Gentiles here who were without hope and without God. Look at what is then given to us now that we've been made one new man. Look at verse 19. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now in the supernatural work of the cross, you now have been made a natural citizen with the saints. You are fellow citizens. You are called, Paul says, verse 19, members of the household of God. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then look at this. Verse 21. We are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, being built together, Jew and Gentile as one new man, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, the great promise of the Old Testament was that the Spirit would dwell with his people. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit dwelt in a temple, in a place, a fixed place. But now through the supernatural work of the cross. The temple is the church. It's you and me. The temple dwells in us individually and collectively as the church. Brothers and sisters, the temple we've been waiting to be built 
as we read the Old Testament, is not a new temple in Israel. It's the church of Jesus Christ. All the promises of the glory of the temple to come was testifying to the church of Jesus Christ. God wasn't talking about bricks and mortar, but hearts and people. And that's hope for us as Gentiles who naturally had no right in these things. A third thing we see and understanding the mystery of the gospel. We come to chapter 3. Paul tells us about how the stewardship of the mystery has been given to him. Verse 2, he talks about the stewardship of God's grace. This is the word economy again. The economy of God's grace was given to Paul by revelation. And Paul says in verse 5, this wasn't made known to the sons of men in other generations. Again, this was a thing hidden in ages past, but it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this is it. If you want to know the big idea of Ephesians, put a big arrow to verse 6. This is the big idea, verse 6. This is the key that unlocks the door to the Old Testament. He says, verse 6, chapter 3, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So if you want to know the mystery for all time, the mystery hidden in the Old Testament, it is this, that in Jesus... Gentiles, the nations, the dogs and the scum of the earth by faith have now been made fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ. Can you believe that? And again, if you're not convinced yet, look at verse 9. Paul describes how in the gospel he was called to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, the economy, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. And need not just to us, but to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So that angels and demons alike would come to know who is the Lord and to see how God was going to work all these things. Remember Peter talks about the things angels long to look, things into which angels long to look. This is the same idea here. The church, the Jew-Gentile church, is the manifold wisdom of God. You can't, I can't think of a word more all-encompassing than manifold. The church is not God's plan B, where he has another plan for the Jews, and then there's a separate plan 
for Gentiles in the church. The church is the plan. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The church manifested in places like right here before us. This is the manifold wisdom of God. It doesn't look very wise to the world. It doesn't look very wise to false teachers. But this is the wisdom. That God is uniting a people together for himself in Jesus as a plan for the fullness of time. This is his manifold wisdom. And what a beautiful picture of that wisdom do I see before my eyes as I look upon you. People from many nations gathered together, united in Jesus Christ with an eternal hope to which we walk together as pilgrims to the heavenly country. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? What a privilege it is for so many of us here to be aliens and strangers because we get to see this as Norwegians and as internationals. We get to see the beauty of the gospel in a way many don't if you're all from the same place. And that's great too, but we have a special privilege as an international church to behold with our eyes the things promised long ago and fulfilled in Jesus. And that should give us great hope as we go forth in this world as pilgrims, that we can enjoy the manifold wisdom of God as the church of Jesus Christ on earth, Jews and Gentiles united together in Jesus. Paul then leads again to a prayer that you would now understand this. Again, he picks up on what he prayed for earlier, that you would, uh, God would strengthen you through the power of the Spirit in your inner being, verse 16 and then 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then Paul ends with this beautiful benediction to God's plan for the fullness of time. And I want you to note how he roots the culmination of this plan in two things, in the, God's glory in the church and in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If you want to know what God's plan is, be part of his church. Because in Jesus Christ, God has determined to root his glory in the church, not just for the first century or the second century, but for all generations. And so may that be our prayer in whatever we do as a church. May we say to him be glory to him be glory in this church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the mystery of the gospel revealed, brothers and sisters. That is hope for Gentiles like you and me in the church. Let's now move to the third and final point. So far this morning, we've seen that Ephesians 
is a time for worship. Paul shows us in Ephesians that we live in a time for worship. He showed us, secondly, that this is a time for understanding the mystery of the gospel. And now, thirdly, he tells us that we live in a time to walk worthy of your calling. A time to walk worthy of your calling. So that as we turn the page to 2024, what should we do? Well, Paul tells us right here, it's a time to walk worthy of your calling. This verb walk is used five times in this section. Again, if you look at your worship folder on page four, just to give you an outline of this section, Walk is used five times. In verse 4, we see walk, it's a call to walk in unity. In chapter 4, verse 17, we're called to walk no longer as the Gentiles do. In chapter 5, Paul uses the verb walk three times. Walk in love, in light, and wisdom. And then it ends with a call to stand. So you have this walk, 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 stand. So in light of the glory of everything that he has revealed to us, there is a lifestyle that we are called to. There is a lifestyle. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 10, there are good works that have been prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. So after Paul talks about how we've been saved by grace through faith, he says, you've been saved By grace, not by works, but God has works for you to do as a result of your salvation. And that is now fleshed out for us in these closing chapters. It's to walk worthy of your calling. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace, but we are called to live a life worthy of the gospel. There are works that have been made for us to do, indeed prepared beforehand, probably before the foundations of the world. It's part of God's economy for all things. So that he knew that there would be a Toral and an Elga and a Peter, and he has things prepared for you to do. And every one of you here, he has things, he has work for you to do. A work, a lifestyle for you to walk in as a result of the gospel. And so these final chapters, chapters four to six, deal with that. They give us principles for how to walk in the works that God created beforehand for us to do. And we will just look at them in brief. In chapter four, verses one to 16, we, call, we see we are called to walk in unity. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul, again, he's writing from prison. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what is this worthiness? Now think about this as a Jew-Gentile church of the first century struggling with Jew and Gentile relations. What's the number one issue? It's unity, isn't it? And that's why Paul had to talk about and emphasize that we've been made one new man in the place of two. There's oneness, unity, there's peace. And he reminds them in verse 3, 
bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Verse 4, he talks about how there's one body, there's one Spirit, there's one hope. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God and Father of us all. This is a call to walk in unity together. But even within unity, there is diversity. And in chapter six and fo- or 7 and following, he talks about that, the role of apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers. But again, the point of all of this is verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We've seen in other books like 1 Corinthians the role of spiritual gifts, but we've each been given work to do, not to prop ourselves up or set ourselves apart, but to unify us in Jesus, to present the whole church to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ, so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Unity is essential for growth in the church. You know, we pray for growth. We'd love to see a hundred people in this room, right? It's easy to count nickels and noses, right? How much are people giving and how many, how many seats are being filled? But growth is so much more than that. It's about maturity, growing in wisdom, the wisdom of Christ together, and we need one another to do that. And it's remarkable to me that Paul says in verse 16, that by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That if we are not, if any of us are not doing its work, we're like a clunky machine or engine that isn't quite working right. Like the timing belts off. It's clunk, 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 clunk. you know, to have a smooth purring engine. Everything needs to work. Everything needs to work so that we're not like walking like with a limp. Every joint, every ligament needs to work work properly, and we are joints and ligaments, and we are parts of the body, and we need every one. So never think coming to church is an option. That's just a benefit for you. You have a job to build up the church of Jesus Christ. That's why we gather together every Lord's Day. Because we have a job. You're not just coming to get your personal spiritual download. Like, I like this preacher, I like that preacher, that was okay, that wasn't so great today. Or I like this music or that music. That's not what it's about at all. It's about coming together to build one another up towards maturity in Jesus Christ. It's so easy to argue about doctrine because you can have a a theoretical knowledge of things. The real work is when you start loving one another and working for unity. That's the mature work. That's the, that's the work of men and women, not children. And you children, we work that you might grow up into strong adults 
in the faith as well. Some of you children have more wisdom than some adults that I have met. So praise God for that. Paul also calls us to walk no longer according to how we used to live. In chapter 4, verse 17 and following, he tells the church, walk no longer, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And what are the things that Paul points, I'll just point out a few things here. He talks about how the Gentiles, they've been darkened in their understanding and they've become callous you know, something that strikes me in this whole section, particularly with Paul using the word mystery, is that the city of Ephesus was filled with magic, witches, sorcerers. It was a place for hidden knowledge, philosophy, the secret knowledge and understanding. Everyone was eager for insight into the unknown realm. But Paul says these people were darkened in their understanding. They were callous. The true magic, the true mystery came in Jesus. right? But if we are what we say we are, we can't walk like they used to. Verse 21 Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, in verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25, Paul reminds us that we are members of one another. Again, this appeal to unity but let me just give you some of the things he says here before we move on. It's a call to speak the truth. It's a call, verse 26, to be angry and do not sin. 28, it's a call to do honest work. 29, it's a call that no corrupting talk would come out of your mouths. Verse 30, it's a call to not grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, it's a call to let all bitterness and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. In verse 32, it's a call to be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The new life is the life of the Spirit. We saw that last week in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul then goes on to talk about how this is a time to walk in love. Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. This ultimately leads to walking as children of light. Verse 8, For at one time you were darkened, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to do what is pleasing in the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Think about the sorcery 
in the there is there's a scene in Acts where the magicians bring their magic books to be burned in Ephesus, which caused a great riot. Just think about the context of what Paul's writing here. Take no part in those works of darkness, but instead expose them. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Brothers and sisters, it's a time to wake up. May 2024 be a time when we wake up from our sleepy slumber. Finally, walk as wise. Chapter 5, verse 15 and following concludes this section on walking. And I just want to point out a few things briefly as an overview of this book. There's kind of two big ways we walk in wisdom. The first is in how we conduct ourselves with one another. We're called not to be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but, verse 18, filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. One of the great ways we walk in wisdom is singing to one another. Singing to one another. There's debate about what uh, Paul means by these three uses of psalmos, odes, and hymnos. These are three, uh, three terms that are used as um, subcategories of the Psalms of David. So in the, if you read the Greek Old Testament and the Psalms of David, there's superscriptions for each psalm in the book of Psalms. Some are called psalms. Some are called hymns. Some are called odes. Some are a combination of those. So some argue that Paul is calling us to sing the Psalms of David. Others see these as the Psalms of the Bible and, say, Christian hymns or things like that. I think the, we may never know for sure. This may be a debate that goes till eternity, and then the Lord will clarify it for us. But the most important thing is that we are singing the Psalms of Christ. We'll see this in Colossians uh, next time, that the word of Christ dwells richly in us by singing to one another, singing of Jesus Christ to one another. And we can do that with the Psalms of David, and we can do that with other hymns and songs as well. But the real way that wisdom is shown, and this is the hardest way, when I look at most conflicts in the church, they do not, most conflicts in the church, how do I say this? I think of it like a, a counselor or a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Someone comes in with a presenting issue, but then the task of the psychiatrist or psychologist is to get to the core issue. You know, so a husband and wife come in, they're fighting about something. That's a presenting issue, but the core issue is something deeper, right? When I think about the greatest threats to unity in the church of Jesus Christ, they seldom present themselves as the core problem. They come in as doctrinal issues, or we don't like this or that about the church, or what someone did or that. The core issue is submission 
out of reverence for Jesus Christ. These are the hardest things to grow in as a Christian because they're deep down, but they're the heart of the matter if we want to walk wise in light of the gospel. And Paul in verses 21 and following gives household codes, uh, spells out a household code that deals with each kind of person in the house and how should we live wisely submitting to one another, verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. We see a call for husbands, or sorry, a call for wives, verse 22, to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, it's a call for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice how each of these submissions is in relationship to Jesus. So wives, submit your husbands as to the Lord. And he'll talk about how Christ is the head of the church. In verse 25, husbands, love your wives as, again, pointing to the Lord, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We see the call for children in chapter 6, verse 1, to obey your parents, again, in the Lord, for this is right. We see a call for fathers in verse 4, to not provoke your children, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So each one of these roles of submission is in respect to Jesus. A call to bond servants. A significant percentage of, the, of those who had been reading this letter in this original context would have been bond servants and slaves. I forget that I didn't write down the percentage, but it's a very high percentage of the population of Ephesus that would be in servitude. So many in the church would be in the position. So as bond servants, obey your earthly masters, verse 7, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. So in their servitude, they're to do it willingly and gladly with goodwill as to the Lord. They're not all ultimately serving a master. They're serving the Lord. And then the warning to masters in verse 9, do the same to them and stop your threatening. And Paul reminds them of the final judgment. Knowing that he is both their master and yours master is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So all of these calls to walk in wisdom, submitting to one another, is with an eye to the Lord. Finally then, after all these calls to walk, 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 five calls of walk, walk in unity, not as the Gentiles, walk in love and light and wisdom, it ends with this, stand, stand. Stand. The biggest problem in the church is not the person sitting next to you. The biggest problem in your home is not the spouse that you're united to. The biggest problem in the church is that the devil is in the midst of the garden. And he is scheming to destroy the church 
that Jesus gave his lifeblood for to unite. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Every time I drive to this church building, I drive by this empty haunted house just down the road. And I pray that the devil would crush the schemes of the devil, that he would tear down. What did I say? Oh, sorry. <laughs> that Jesus would crush the schemes of the devil. Thank you, Deborah. That the devil would be undone by his own doing. That the God of peace would soon crush Satan under our feet as he promised the Romans. And that the Lord would redeem Stavanger in Norway and Tasta. I love that picture in, uh, is it in The Hobbit? The Peter Jackson version of The Hobbit where uh, um, Galadriel is there and she shines the light of Elendor, right? And Sauron is blasted back. We're called to walk as children of light. We have a light to which Tolkien was pointing us to in his own kind of mythology as a Christian writing The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. We have the light of Christ that pushes back the darkness. It's the light that John writes about in chapter 1 that the darkness could not overcome. And that's the light I pray for as we serve the Lord as the church in Tasta, at Stavanger, and in Norway. May we stand against the schemes of the devil. For the reality is in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In Jesus, God has united all things in heaven and earth. That is, even the devil is subject to the Lord. And the devil will go down. When the Lord returns. But in the meantime, the way Christ is doing battle with the devil is through the saints. He is redeemed by the power of the Spirit working in us. He's given us armor for warfare. We are called to warfare. And we're given the armor, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And what is this armor? Verse 14, the belt of truth. It's the breastplate of righteousness. It's 15, verse 15, it's the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Verse 16, it's the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one. It's the helmet of salvation. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Brothers, we do warfare with the word of God. That's why the world hates it when we share the word of God. 
That's why countries like Finland are striving to shut down the word of God and censor the word. That's why Christians around the world are being slaughtered because they are proclaiming the word of God because it is the light and the darkness hates the light. And so Paul, going to his own martyrdom as a prisoner in chains, closes his letter to the Ephesians meant to be sent around to the other churches to remind them that you are in a battle for your soul. And the church is in a battle for its very existence. You were, when you were saved, you were conscribed into an army to do battle. And we go forth with the word, with faith. Praying at all times, verse 18, in the spirit, with all prayer and all supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, verse 19, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This mystery revealed, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I've been reading through the Apostolic Fathers, which is a collection of uh, first and second century literature by those in the post-apostolic era. Reading of uh, letters from men like Ignatius of Antioch and of Polycarp of Smyrna, who were writing to the churches, the very churches the apostles planted on their way to their own martyrdoms to be fed to the lions in Rome, to the gladiator sword, to the fiery pyre, to be burned alive for the faith. And it's been so convicting to me, so convicting to me, because our earthly concerns so often overwhelm what really matters. And these men were writing as they're going to their executioner in the most gruesome manner possible, the most public gruesome manner possible, saying, flee worldliness. They're saying, pray for me that the Lord might make me worthy to be a fitting sacrifice. For my Lord. As we close the chapter in 2023 and start a new year, may the Lord help us to focus on that which truly matters. This life is momentary. This life is but a, a blink of the eye. Eternity is a long time. But what a hope we have in Jesus that as a plan for the fullness of time, God set forth his son to give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, not because of our position in this world or our ethnic heritage, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's hope. May this glorious hope 
compel us into this new year to walk worthy of the calling that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I think of the words of your servant Tyndale, who out of the love to translate the Bible into the English tongue, knew that the likelihood of his own brutal execution was all but guaranteed, and who said to cast out Roman darkness by this light, the loss of land and life, I reckon slight. I pray that you would make us a church that understands the hope to which we have been called, that we might also understand and fulfill our duty on earth. that on the day of judgment, knowing that we stand before you solely on grace alone, that nevertheless we could rejoice with you in what you graciously allowed us to do by the Spirit at work within us. That even that would be not a boast in ourselves, but a boast in Christ. As servants merely doing the thing that was prepared beforehand for us to do. Lord, we do pray that you would crush the devil as the church militant strives, as pilgrims of earth. I pray that you would crush the devil in Tosta, in Stavanger and in Norway, in Scandinavia, and around the world. I pray that we would go to our jobs on Tuesday of this week, not serving earthly masters, but doing all things for you. I pray that we would use our opportunities in this world wisely to sow seeds of the gospel in the field that you've planted us in. I pray that there would be a holy and submissive love to one another that makes the world scratch their head, a world filled with division and strife and jealousy and covetousness and anger and malice and avarice pray that the sacrificial love of your church would win many to a hearing of the gospel. In all these things, Lord, we pray for your glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Amen.